This is the case dot report. and welcome to this podcast on silver trauma. We hope to provide you with a general overview of this relatively new concept, including its definition and background, as well as guidance on the assessment and management of frail older people presenting to the emergency department with traumatic injury. We'll also discuss some of the challenges associated with the identification of silver trauma and consider ways that trauma services could be developed to meet the needs of frail older people who make up an increasing proportion of the major trauma patient population. I'm Dr Sarah Turpin, an orthogeriatrician based in the Borders General Hospital in South East Scotland. My clinical interests include silver trauma and interface geriatrics with a particular focus on collaborative working and multidisciplinary education in the emergency department. I'm joined today by Professor Tim Coates, Tim is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Leicester with a particular interest in pre-hospital and trauma care. As well as having a wealth of publications on many avenues of emergency medicine, he is the chairman of the Trauma Audit and Research Network, otherwise known as TARN, which is an organisation that collects data on processes and outcomes relating to patients using trauma services in England and Wales. In 2017, Tarn published the Major Trauma in Older People report, which identified some important differences between older and younger major trauma patients and highlighted the need for a rethink of the organisation and training within trauma systems to ensure that they are delivering the best possible care to frail older people. So, Tim, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by discussing the definition of silver trauma, since it's a relatively new term which has only been around for the last five years or so. What does it mean to you? So um, I'm not sure that I really like the term silver trauma. Um, I think because I think the group that we're talking about is not necessarily age related I much prefer the term low energy transfer major trauma, but I realise that that's five words rather than two, so it's and it's definitely not as catchy. So what does this group mean to me? Well, I think it's the, the group that is predominantly older people, but is also younger people with multiple comorbidities um, that we've seen within the trauma data becoming an increasing proportion of the major trauma that we're seeing in the UK. Up to about three or four years ago, the typical major trauma patient was young male involved in a road traffic collision. But actually now the majority of our patients are typically older, female, and involved in a fall on one level. So not the sort of what you'd classically think about as major trauma. But this group has got just as severe injuries. We categorize injuries with the injury severity score and the median injury severity score in the UK data is the same across injury bands. So this group that you could call silver trauma have just as severe injuries, 
but they have a different mechanism of injury, they have a different presentation, they have different physiology, they have different treatment requirements. So they're, they're emerging as a subgroup within this population of major trauma patients that we need perhaps to think about differently. So um, I've, I've also heard the term silver trauma referred to as stealth trauma. Do you think this is a helpful term? I think that the stealth trauma is uh, quite a good way of thinking, and it comes from an editorial that Fionn Davis and I wrote when we were talking about the similarities between the presentation of major trauma in young children and older people. And in both those groups, when the patient first is seen by the health services, it really isn't obvious that they're suffering from major trauma. So it's trauma that flies under the radar. And I think that the stealth trauma is just a good way of, a good catchy way of conceptualizing that. So you've mentioned that the patterns of traumatic uh, presentations in older people differ from their their sort of younger male counterparts. Um, can you explain a bit more about how they differ? So I think the mechanism of injury is the is, is the big differentiation. These are patients that have a relatively low energy transferred through their body compared to the road traffic collision, which gives a high energy transfer through the body. Um, when you look at the low energy transfer patients, few present after midnight and most are triage tool negative. Now, that's really important because the pre-hospital trauma triage tool is the sort of fundamental um, first step in our trauma management system in the UK. The paramedics apply the triage tool. If the patient is positive on the triage tool, they're likely to have major trauma. Therefore, the paramedics take them straight to a major trauma centre where you've got all of the facilities and the specialities required. And the paramedics bypass the local hospitals, which are mostly trauma units. Now, with this group of older people, because the mechanism that is falling over on one level is so common, And because the physiology of the response is different, when you apply the trauma triage tool to these patients, it comes out negative. So these patients get taken to the local hospital, a non-specialist trauma unit. So the pattern of the initial presentation is very different. And there's a whole load of consequences that flow from that really focused on late identification in this older patient age group. So what you're saying so far is that older people present in a way which means that often their trauma is not identified um, at the point of of presentation to pre-hospital services um, and and they end up um, sometimes in not quite the right environment for those assessments. Um, Once they do get to a hospital, can you expand on some of the challenges in the initial assessment of these patients once once they get into the the hospital system? So I think the initial challenge to initial assessment is the mindset of the clinicians that are looking after them. Uh, If you have, for example, a motorcyclist who's come off his bike at 80 miles an hour, you're automatically in a mindset of thinking major trauma. 
if you see a an elderly person who's been picked up from the floor you're not in that mindset you're in a different place you're thinking of okay what is the underlying illness that's made them fall over and perhaps have they got a fractured wrist or a fractured hip because they're the sort of common things that we see sometimes i i think it about it like the um uh, people of my age will rem remember where's wally the puzzle of you trying to find the little man with the stripy jumper amongst these huge mass of people if you think of that huge mass as old people that fall over and then you're trying to pick out that person in the stripy jumper that's the one patient that's got the major injury amongst all of these elderly fallers so the initial challenge is getting your head into the right place and getting your training and getting the um, your emergency staff thinking could this be major trauma with every older person that is brought in having fallen over the other challenges to the initial assessment is that the patients are mainly head and chest injuries and head injury presents differently in older people um, in particular, an expanding hematoma, because there is more room to expand before compressing the brain, the drop in the level of consciousness happens quite a lot later on. So when you initially look at the patient, the challenge in your initial assessment is that there's a different um, way that injury is, is presenting. There's also different physiology. We've taught for many years on trauma life support courses that pulse rate is a really good indicator Whereas in older people, that pulse rate probably isn't a good in, uh, indicator of underlying injury because it's altered by drugs and the aging autonomic system. So the challenges in that initial assessment is that you're not thinking about major trauma and it doesn't present like you think major trauma should present. Wow. That's a real maelstrom of um, opportunity for both cognitive bias early on in the patient's journey and genuine um, educational challenges around the, the different physiology of aging. So in your role as a sort of emergency department consultant working in a major trauma centre, can you offer any tips to uh, our listeners from a clinical perspective about ways they could optimise their primary and secondary surveys of a frail trauma patient presenting with stealth trauma to try to avoid some of these oversights? I've sometimes heard this referred to as the silver survey. Um, again, I'm not sure that I like that as a, as, a, as a term. I think this is around just having good skills at assessing the older patient and then applying them to the patients that have potentially have major injury. So the first thing to do is to, to, to think that this might be a major injury and be looking for it, because if you don't think about it and don't look for it, you're not gonna find it. Um, I think uh, go slow. These are patients that are in a high sensory input environment and uh, going slow both in your speech and your examination to give the patient an opportunity to catch up with what the questions that you're asking and the things that you're asking them to do. Be careful about language. Um, pain is a word that we use quite a lot but I think a lot of older people use it in a different way to younger people. 
Um, very often I've been told, oh, this person's fallen over, they've got no pain in their chest. And I go and have a look at them myself and I say, is your chest uncomfortable? And the patient says, oh, really uncomfortable on the right hand side here. And then you ask, do you have any pain? Well, it's not really pain. So I think the way that we ask questions and the words that we use are important. And I think pain is a way as a word to be avoided. On the physical examination, I think you've got to have the same mindset that you have in assessing the acute abdomen in an older patient, that even really quite subtle signs, just a little bit of tenderness without guarding, for example, um, might well be very significant. So just a little bit of chest wall tenderness on palpation is something that I think really should precipitate further, further investigation. I think top tips, I've mentioned pulse rate, probably not that helpful, but I think respiratory rate is quite helpful, particularly in trying to identify the patients that have the chest injury. And it's not necessarily a highly abnormal respiratory rate, but a respiratory rate towards the top end of the normal range should just make you stop and think whether there's anything that's going on in the chest. Take time to ask the patient to move um, when you're examining when you're examining limbs and and, and joints, um, and beware of hard collars, particularly in patients that have pre-existing disease on the uh, to, to their neck. Um, hard collars used to be a mantra that it was the first thing you did was to put a hard collar on the patient, but now protection of the neck is um, definitely still worth thinking about, but a hard collar perhaps isn't the best way to, to do that. With all of that in mind, have a low threshold for scanning. Uh, these patients, we're probably finding a lot of these patients, not because of the changing demographic in the population. The population is slowly aging, but we've had a rapid increase in the number of older major trauma patients in the national data set. And I think that's really coincident with increased CT scanning, particularly increased CT head scanning with the NICE head injury guidelines. So I think a lot of these injuries in older people were there in the past, we just weren't really noticing them. And if we did notice them, didn't really think of them as major trauma. Excellent. So just to summarise, you say a low threshold for um, CT scanning and just to be aware that relatively minor signs on examination could translate to very significant pathology uh, that's difficult to identify without adequate uh, imaging. Absolutely right. Yeah. So thank you so much for those helpful tips. I think that's going to be invaluable for our, our clinical listeners. One question just based on what you've just said, you mentioned um, considering protecting the neck, but that hard collars are no longer so um, so much of a mantra, particularly for a, a frail older person with pre-existing cervical spine disease. What ways would you suggest that people uh, protect the neck of a, a frail older patient, particularly somebody who is agitated, perhaps with a dementia, who's struggling to to sort of be immobilised? So I think that's uh, an, a really interesting question and a proper, you, you know, a, a real world dilemma. Um, and I think it's a question of balancing different risks. I mean, I've seen 
quite a few patients who have had their head and their neck wonderfully immobilized, but are twisting their body all over the place, um, which is obviously not immobilizing their spine. So I think it, if you can immobilize um, uh, the head in an older patient, um, head blocks and tapes are good. Um, there's no need for the patient to be absolutely flat, um, a bed that bends at the patient's hips so their spine um, uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't bend. So elevating the top half of the bed by um, a, a few degrees so they're not lying absolutely flat. Uh, head block and tapes um, in a position of comfort. Um, putting a patient into a position they're not comfortable in is probably uh, more likely to be causing damage. And if the patient is not able to cooperate with immobilization, um, it's probably best not to be attempting immobilization because I think in trying to force patients into a particular position, you're much more likely to do damage than the patient is likely to do in mo moving around themselves. Basically, patients don't do things that hurt, and if you're if you're if you've got a, a significant neck injury, moving it will hurt. And uh, the um, patient who's not able to be immobilised will uh, probably be better just looking after their own cervical spine um, with with the with um, the pain. So I think there is perhaps too much emphasis on immobilising the neck and trying to pin people down and restrain them is just, I think, not not good patient care. I think that's a, a really helpful piece of advice. And it also echoes the, um, I think, a fairly recurring theme in uh, geriatric care, particularly in an acute setting, which is that protocol-driven care uh, where there's very little consideration of deviation uh, in the case of somebody frail and multimorbid can often sometimes result in harm um, and actually um, considering the the wider picture and a more holistic approach to the patient and their behavior and their needs in that moment uh, can 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 lead to more patient-centered care in that setting but obviously it's a very difficult balance and and requires some some senior input and and expert knowledge so um just moving on now to a, a wider system level view of the care of um, older low impact trauma patients. Uh, what sort of outcomes are, are you currently measuring uh, and what do you think we should be measuring in these patients and, and how do those differ from younger counterparts? Oh, that's an absolutely great question, and you, you know, an area that I'm, uh, I think, is at the forefront of of, of thinking of this patient group. Um, you know, for many years, our outcome that we've audited is lived and died. Um, and, you know, maybe in the younger group, I can see why that would be, uh, uh, that's certainly an important outcome. But even in those younger patients, it's not the only outcome. And um, we've been, over the last five years, moving on to um, uh, measure patient reported outcomes in our, in our major trauma patients. Um, but I think even the PROMs, which are, you know, the sort of, the later state of the art uh, are really still geared to things like getting back 
to work, um, getting back to, as the old joke says, the objective being to get back to tax paying status, getting back to um, uh, doing the things in life and work that younger people want to do. Um, we haven't got a separate patient reported outcome measure for um, trauma care. Um, and I think even in emergency care, we don't really know what it is that older people want to get out of their um, emergency care. We often have, in general, a very medical model is that we want to cure the disease. But actually, that's not necessarily what's important to, uh, to, to our patients. So I don't have a great answer to your question. I think it is a really fertile area for research projects. And I think it knowing what older people want from their trauma care would actually help us to shape the services and make services more appropriate. That's interesting, Tim. Are you aware of any research that's going on at the moment that lo that's looking into patient reported outcomes for older people undergoing trauma care? Are we actually asking them these important questions? Um, so there are a number of projects in in formulation at the moment, um, and a couple of PhD proposals. There are there's work that I'm involved in um, in looking at what general emergency care older people um, want from um, their emergency care, and I think taking those methodologies and applying them to the to the major trauma patients would be um, is going to be a really fertile area for research. So considering both your own experience as an emergency medicine consultant working in a major trauma centre and also your knowledge of the older people's report from Tarn, how do you feel that trauma services could be developed to better serve the frail patients who are making up such a significant proportion of the inpatient population of trauma units and major trauma centres now? So I think the first thing is around mindset. Um, the people that run major trauma uh, are often focused on the sort of interventions, the, um, you know, the blue light stuff, um, what can be done for these patients, the sur surgery that they require, the resuscitation that they require. Um, and they've often gone into trauma care really thinking about the young person's trauma, the high energy transfer major trauma as being what they're in the system for. And that's what I think a lot of people think of as real major trauma. So I think one of the things is mindset amongst those people that are running the major trauma services in the, in, in, in the UK. And I think that really means thinking about low energy transfer major trauma as a different disease. And I know I've argued in the past, if you look at the international classification of diseases of what makes a different disease, well, low energy transfer major trauma ticks all the boxes of having a different etiology, having a different treatment requirement, having different outcomes and so on and so forth. So thinking about low energy transfer as being, being different, I think is the first sort of crucial step. I think then we've got to say that the the philosophy that underlines our current trauma system which is take the patient direct to a major trauma center isn't going to work for these older patients with major trauma 
Um, there's been quite a bit of work done on looking at developing a pre-hospital triage tool specifically for older people to identify <clears throat> the one in a thousand cases of a fall that has major trauma and most of these just don't work um, and I don't think there is that much that identifies the differences are so subtle that they can't be put into that sort of triage tool so assuming we can send older people direct to a specialist centre for major trauma I don't think that's going to work so what that means is that this is going to continue to be a disease of trauma units that is every hospital in the UK so we have to change our thinking about trauma services for from something that happens in major trauma centers to something that happens in every hospital in the country and i think that is um, a different way of thinking about what we're doing i think we have to plan for late identification um, I think identifying these patients early is going to be really difficult. It's going to be later in their journey through the healthcare system, either later in the emergency department or um, even on a medical ward the next day, um, which quite a few of our patients are being identified 24 hours after, after admission. So we've got to plan for that late, late identification. Um, and have a system that then kicks in wherever the patient is and doesn't rely on the patient being taken to a major trauma centre. So a trauma team needs to be involved at that stage, but we don't necessarily have to have the patient transferred to a major trauma centre to see the trauma team. So the group, the trauma specialists need to be involved in treatment planning, but don't necessarily need to be hands-on with the patient. Now, at the moment, what you often have is a junior doctor on a geriatric ward phoning up lots of different specialties. And that's a really um, poor model for, for combined decision making. So I think having something like a virtual trauma team so that the trauma specialists can in some way assemble and give an opinion on a patient, even though the patient isn't right in front of them. Now, we did a very similar thing from the hospital in Birmingham to the hospital at Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. And if we can do remote trauma advice from Birmingham to Afghanistan, surely we can do it from our major trauma centres to their feeding trauma units. And I think we have to, with this change in mindset of what the patient needs, very few of these patients need surgical intervention. I mean, what they need is really good multidisciplinary geriatric care and rehabilitation. And we've actually got a great model in that's been developed over the years in the orthogeriatric model applied to hip fractures. Well, a very similar way of dealing with the patient, I think, needs to be applied to these older major trauma patients. So that's quite a lot of change in a trauma system that only 10 years ago sort of moved the emphasis in major trauma from every hospital into the major trauma units. And now I think we've almost got to change the focus again to keep the major trauma unit system working for the high energy transfer major trauma, but actually move some of that um, thinking out again into every hospital that will be looking after these older trauma patients. So a big change in the way that we organise trauma care. Well, that 
that sounds truly ripe for um, so much opportunity in terms of service development um, in pretty much every hospital in in the UK and beyond, really, for um, optimising the care of these patients. Because, as you say, they sit on every orthogeriatric ward in the UK and probably quite a few of the medical wards as well. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, this is already happening. You know, I think it's no... It's perhaps no coincidence that Southampton has the best trauma outcomes um, in the country over a number of years, and that's a system that's led by a geriatrician. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked quite a lot about changing mindset among the clinicians who are involved, both on the coalface, the junior doctors seeing the patients as they present to hospital, um, paramedics who are seeing the patients uh you know, in their own homes as they present, uh, but also the more um, senior management and uh, senior medical and nursing uh, colleagues who are working at a service development and delivery level. Are you aware of any resources or particular training opportunities for um, clinicians looking to improve their knowledge and skills in the area of, of you know, low impact trauma in the elderly? So I think one of the good things in this area is that it's become a hot topic. You know, it's something that is talked about on social media. And I think there really is an awareness getting out there now about the importance of this um, the, this, this patient group. Um, it, uh, so I think a lot of conferences, uh, a lot of the trauma and emergency care conferences at the moment have got geriatric trauma streams going on. So conferences is a good source of uh, of education. There's a whole load of foam resources uh, online. Most of the emergency care um, foam sites have pretty good resources now on uh, uh, geriatric trauma care. And there's the Hector course run in Edinburgh, you know, specifically focused on 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 on, on how to, how to manage these patients. So I think there's there's resources out there, um, there's training out there, and there really is an increasing awareness. So I'm pretty positive about the future here. Yes, I'm inclined to agree. Um, just for, for, for interest's sake, the British Geriatric Society Conference, uh, I think last year, had an entire stream on uh, geriatric trauma, um, a major trauma in older people um, day, which was really interesting uh, listening and viewing. And absolutely, I've done the HECT course myself um, via the Northern Trauma, Trauma Network up in Northumberland, and it is a, a fantastic course, uh, which I would recommend to anybody interested, particularly uh, junior doctors working uh, in emergency departments, but also on, on medical wards. So um, be- before we finish, uh, do you have any final thoughts or take home messages o- on this subject that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um. I guess to say this isn't just a UK issue. This is happening in many developed systems around the world. I've just been in um, Singapore and Hong Kong. They have exactly the same uh, changes going on in their their system as have Japan. Um, in the Australian Emergency Medicine uh, ISEM conference recently, there was a whole stream on uh, geriatric trauma as well. I guess final pointers are low threshold of suspicion in older people for getting further investigations, particularly CT scanning. And if there's one message perhaps to leave everyone with, it's have a low threshold in old people that fall over and don't dismiss them as just maybe a minor injury. 
Well, thank you, Tim. That's, I think, a fantastic take-home message and one that I would wholeheartedly agree with. So we hope that you found this podcast useful in outlining the subject of silver trauma and that it's given you some helpful pointers around identifying and assessing frail older people presenting with traumatic injuries, as well as some food for thought around the particular challenges and opportunities relating to service delivery and development for these people. Please check out gerryemeurope.eu for other geriatric emergency medicine topics, educational resources and podcasts relating to the care of older adults in the ED. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you.